so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Welcome, listeners. Um, I would like to begin by simply telling you guys that what we are going to talk about in Romans chapter 7 is undoubtedly a very, or can be, a very confusing chapter. And there's some things in it that I have already kind of expounded upon at length in some of the other chapters or podcasts that I've done in Romans. So if this is your first time, for you know, I want to say welcome, but I also want to tell you that Listening to this alone will probably cause you to be confused about some things because I'm not going to go in depth. So what I would encourage you on, some of the things I'm going to talk about, I would encourage you to go back and listen to my Ephesians 2 podcast. I would encourage you to go back and listen to pretty much my entire Galatians series podcast that I have. Um, you could also go back and listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You could go back and listen to Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 podcast series that I've done on all of those. And that'll give you a better understanding of what some of these things that we're going to address here without me having to go fully in depth on it. And then there's some things at the end that I've actually really been looking forward to get to because I see a lot of a, a misconstrued teaching. And though it's well-meaning and though I can understand how people get there from the teaching that's here, it's not congruent with the fullness of what Paul has talked about in chapter um, or in, in all of Romans, let alone all the New Covenant. So I say all that to tell you. If you're listening to this as a standalone message, your first time listening, there's probably going to be some things that you're going to walk away from listening to me on and be like, what is this guy talking about? I am encouraging you to go back and start on Romans chapter 1, go all the way through, and then listen to this podcast. And even better, go back and listen to Ephesians 2, 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. If you've been joining me for a while, then some of these things have probably already been addressed. And so, as such, you know my angle, you know where I'm coming from, and you've seen my teaching throughout the entirety of the New Testament, not just this one thing. So with that, I'm going to tell you guys, um, if you want to continue on listening to this one, that's great. Listen to it, glean something from it, um, but you probably need to go listen to some of these other podcasts because I'm not going to go super in-depth so that I can get to the majority of what I want to talk about today. So... In this, um, and you know, that's actually twofold because I'm going to talk a lot about Torah or the law of Moses, but I'm also going to talk a little bit about the concept of divorce and remarriage, which has gone haywire in the church today. Um, for that, I would encourage you to go listen to my podcast series over 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I believe I even have two of them. And so I would highly, highly, highly recommend going to listen to that. Um, all right, so with that said, let me get on into this. Chapter 7, verse 1 of Romans. Or do you not know, brothers, 
For I'm speaking to those who know the law. So I, I, automatically he's identifying this as beloved, as the brothers, the people who belong to Jesus Christ. He's addressing them. And he says, and I'm specifically addressing the brothers who are in Christ who know Torah. He continues. He says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So, again, I'm not going to go super in-depth. I encourage you to go back and listen to my podcast series over 1 Corinthians 7. I do go super in-depth in that. In fact, I think I even break it down into three different podcasts. If you want to know the truth about what the New Testament teaches, and some people might call me arrogant for, for being, having a confidence that what God has shown me in His Word is truth, um, then, then so be it. Call me arrogant all you want to. I'm confident that the Lord has shown me these things in His Word. And if you can prove me otherwise, if you can use the text to show me that I'm wrong, then I'm humble enough to admit that I'm wrong. But God has shown me through His Word that these things are true. And I'm going to tell you this. Divorce, there is no justification whatsoever for a believer to get a divorce. And I know people go to Matthew chapter 5 and they look at that. And I'm going to encourage you, go listen to what I say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because I'm going to break down what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5. Because not everything there was for New Testament or New Covenant doctrine. Some of that was clarifying what was written primarily in marriage, what was written under the Deuteronomy 22 and 23, of what he was talking about, about premarital infidelity. But Paul, or through the epistles, we have the establishment of new covenant doctrine because the covenant wasn't established until Jesus died, as Hebrews 9 talks about. So until that took place, the new covenant wasn't established. So much of what was taught in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is Jesus clarifying some of the things that were being mistaught by the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin over the people. Much as what I'm doing right now is seeking to correct much of what is being incorrectly taught and distortions of the word to the church today. There is no justification for a divorce for a believer. And here's why. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband. That is a Greek word that means deo. Or that is deo, and here's what it means. Of law or knit and tied in chains, in bonds. It is something that is heavenly. It is a law that is established. He says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. What did he just say in Romans chapter 7? This is a new teaching when it comes to marriage. It's what God already Wanted from the very beginning, as he talks about in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is questioned about, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? And he says, what does the law tell you? It says, well, we, the law says of Moses, we could divorce for any reason. If she didn't please us, we could divorce. And Jesus says, yes, but in the beginning, it was not so. He says, what therefore God 
has joined together. Let not man separate. The law of Moses does not negate the law that God has established of what marriage is from the beginning. When he brought about its inception to be a foreshadow of what Christ is with this church. And let me just tell you, I hate it when people who believe in the concept of once saved, always saved. That no matter what I do or don't do, God will always be in covenant with me. Teach that divorce is allowable for any reason. Because that in itself is a contradiction. You cannot say that that which is supposed to uphold and parallel to the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ in marriage can be different. And here's what I mean by that. If you say that nothing can separate you from God in Christ Jesus and the covenant that we have that even your own infidelity towards him and adultery or unfaithfulness towards him as it talked about in 2 Timothy 4 cannot separate you from God then why do you allow it in marriage? If this one covenant is unbreakable then why do you say that this one is breakable through infidelity? You see those two are not congruent. It doesn't make sense. Rather, what we have to understand, according to the text, is that only death separates. Whether it be in marriage, or whether it be with our covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. That there is a physical death that separates the marriage covenant, that annuls the marriage covenant, and there is a spiritual death. As I've highlighted in a podcast series over Hebrews chapter 6, among others, in which I talk about the concept of apostasy. I even allude to uh, somewhat in my Romans podcast series. I don't remember which chapter it is that we got into. I believe it was at the part um, part two of chapter five and even in chapter six. I talk about it as a breakdown, Galatians chapter six. All that to say this. This is a teaching, a new covenant teaching of the concept of divorce and remarriage. Remarriage is never allowable for the Christian save widowhood. You will never find a concept in the New Testament ever that allows a wife to separate from her husband, a believing wife to separate from her husband and remarry another while he's still alive. In fact, you find commandments quite the contrary, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So what's that to say for all these people who profess to be believers in Christ who have now been divorced twice and are remarried? I'm going to say you are in adultery. And it's not me, it's the word of God. Likewise, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man. Is that not what he just said in verse 3? Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. This is a New Testament teaching. It is not something that's just allegory. It's not something that he's just using as an illustration for the law. This is a New Testament teaching. And it's time that we as the church began to listen to it. There is no justification for divorce ever for those who claim to be in Christ. And there most certainly is not a cause for remarriage while your spouse is alive. Now why is that important? Because it parallels exactly to our relationship to the law of Moses when we come into Christ. This is why he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as that person lives. Then you're annulled. And so he uses this concept of marriage and this new covenant teaching that brings it back to the beginning of what God was instituting from the very beginning. Remember, 
If you study through Deuteronomy 22 and 23, it wasn't God who was commanding these things. It was Moses commanding these things. And that's a big distinction because that's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. What does Moses command you? And yet he says, but that's not what God said from the beginning. God allowed those things, but it wasn't what he instituted in marriage in the beginning. So he goes on, he says this, likewise in verse 4. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, meaning Jesus Christ. He says, when you, you, you have um, come into Christ, you find your relationship to the law of Moses ceased. To be rendered idle. Katergeo. This is a Greek word that he's about to use in the connection with our relationship to the law of Moses. And a lot of people, I'm sure you might be listening to this and you're like, well, hold up a second. Matthew 5 says that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And you're right. And through his fulfillment of every righteous requirement of the law, as he talks about in Romans chapter 10, that I'm going to read in just a second. His fulfillment brought its abolishment when you came into him. This is what it means when he says you have died to the law through the body of Jesus Christ. Now you can go listen again to my podcast series over 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You might be very surprised at what is taught there. You might be very surprised as to what some of the things that he says in Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. You might even be surprised that in Ephesians 2, he literally says that in Christ, the law of commandments expressed to ordinances, which is a Greek word dogma, meaning the... Um, the, right, the rituals and rights and requirements of the law of Moses, it says, are abolished. That when you come into Christ, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled on your behalf and you are no longer under the law of Moses. As Paul is making extremely and abundantly clear all throughout Romans. That's why he says you are no longer under law, but under grace. You're not under the law of Moses, but under the grace of God. And he's going to talk about some things here in just a second, but I want to establish this point for you. And again, go listen to these previous podcasts because I go much more in depth. He says this in Romans chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning the unbelieving Jews who are not in Christ, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, meaning in Jesus Christ, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to him or everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to him who believes. A death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So that we might then come into Christ, find that that, that relationship to the law now severed so that we can now belong to Christ and no longer to the law of Moses. I don't understand what's so difficult about this. Yes, there are things in the law of Moses that were good. I don't think anyone can debate that. There were things in it that, that were good things. And he even goes on to talk about that. that the law wasn't sin in and of itself. But it was the source in which sin found its power over you. And that's why he says you are no longer under sin because you're no longer under law, but under Christ. 
He says, again, verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, meaning unto Jesus. So Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf so that I no longer am under it. It's no longer my master. I no longer have to heed to what it states in all 613 commandments. Now I heed to the spirit that God has given to me. Because at Pentecost, the law came down to the people. But in the New Covenant, the Spirit came down to the people. It found its fulfillment at Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. The Spirit came down from heaven and it descended upon men. And it became our helper, our instructor, our teacher, our guide. No longer to be the written code or grandma, the Greek word that's used there, but now we serve in the new way of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And that's important to understand. And this is why we listen to the epistles and not what Moses teaches. Because something greater than Moses has come upon us. This is why Second Corinthians 3 says, That which had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. He says this, In order that we may bear fruit for God, for while we were living in the flesh, notice this past tense that's here, and it's so crucial to understand the tense that's used, whether it's present or past or futuristic, it gives us insight into what Paul's talking about. For while we were living in the flesh, so before we came into Christ and we were under the law, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But he wants us to bear fruit for God unto life. And he says this, but now... So who we were, we were dead in our trespasses, we were, uh, you know, all those things in which we once walked under the law, and sin found its power under the law or through the law in order to affect us. He says this, but now we are released from the law, meaning the law of Moses. If you need more clarification on that, go read 7 through um, 8, in which he specifically brings up even one of the Ten Commandments. But now we are katergeo. We are released. It has now become idle and useless for those who are in Christ. I'm just speaking what the word says. A lot of people take a whole lot of offense to this. And I'm going to tell you, get your nose into the word and God will give you the revelation of it also. I'm not saying that there, that there isn't any value to the law. What I'm saying is, in and of itself, the law has now become useless and idle. Because Christ has now become the source in which we stand. What I have told everybody that I always go through this with is that the law only has value in as much as it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. If somebody is going to go keep the feast because Moses said it and they say no because Moses said it, we need to go do it because you know what? We need to live by the law of Moses. Well, then I'm going to tell you that you're an idolatry and you're actually, you should go read Galatians because Galatians says that you're actually blaspheming Christ, making it so that he died for no purpose. Because you think somehow that that is a righteous requirement of the law that you need to uphold in order to be in right standing before God. And I'm going to tell you, those feasts have no value 
unless they point to Jesus Christ and uphold his glory. The Sabbath has no value unless it points to and upholds the person of Jesus Christ. Keeping the law of Moses only has value in as much as it points us and directs us and glorifies the person of Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus says even in Luke 24, 42, everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must find its fulfillment. It was written about him. It was to point people to him. It was to show us our depravity so that we would realize our need for a savior and then chase after Jesus Christ. The law was a springboard to try to propel us unto something greater. But too many people are still bouncing on that springboard and they've never dove into the water of Christ. Or maybe you dove into the water but you're climbing back out and you want to get back on the springboard. That doesn't even make any sense. Man, once you have tasted in the waters of Christ and you have drank from that well, why would you want to get out of it? To go bounce on a springboard? That's all the law was, was a springboard to propel us and lead us into Christ. He says, but now in Christ, in verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code, which is the Greek word grama, which means the sacred writings of the Old Testament. I could expound on this a little bit more, but I'm going to continue on. I would encourage you again to go back and listen to some of the previous podcasts in Romans that I've gone over where I've addressed some of this stuff. Because one of the things that it said, it talks about, we were released from the law having died to that which held us captive. This is why Galatians 5.1 is so paramount to understand the context of what he says in Galatians chapter 4 leading into it. Whenever he says it like this, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Go back and read the context of chapter 4. Because everything there is about the law of Moses. And he says, For freedom Christ has set us free, therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And he's referencing your bondage to the law of Moses. But he goes on in verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law of sin? Paul says, by no means. The law in and of itself was set apart. The law in and of itself was not the issue. It was pointing us to what was the issue. We've got to wrap our mind around this. The law was not sinful. The law in and of itself was good. It was holy. It was, it was set apart. It had a purpose. And it fulfilled that purpose perfectly in God's plan to point people to Jesus Christ. To show us our sinful nature. But through the law, no man could ever be perfect. No man could ever ever have dominion over sin until Christ. Listen to what he goes on to say. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He says, is the law sinful? No, it's not. But if it wasn't for the law, I never would have known the sinful nature within myself. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Go into the Ten Commandments. But sin, 
Notice how it's an outside entity. I've talked about that before in my previous podcast. Sin is an outside entity. Genesis 4, I believe it's in verse 6, says that sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Something that wasn't possible until Christ came. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, listen to it, its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, meaning apart from the law of Moses, sin or sin's power lies dead. So apart from the law of Moses, the medium in which sin used to gain entrance into us, all still part of God's plan so that it could actually bring about an enslavement unto it so that we would realize our sinful nature, turn unto the person of Jesus Christ to find the redemption of our sins that were committed previously and find power and victory over that sin to no longer have to be enslaved to it. The law was the medium that sin used, but, the, but sin can't use Christ because Christ... Never sinned. It didn't have power over him. Because he utilized the power of grace to overcome. He goes on, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What's he saying? He said the law itself was good but its purpose was to reveal sin and sin's power over us. The sin nature that we were born into because of Adam as he talked about in Romans chapter 5 and to lead us to the need for a savior. This is what Galatians 3 is all about. I encourage you to go read it or go listen to the podcast says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death to me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Meaning that we would be given up to those things. That we would then have no victory and no power and no, no ability to overcome that sin. And we would be given up to that sin. So that we would realize how insufficient in our flesh we are. And Paul's about to get into this. And this is part of what I'm talking about is mistaught in the church today. Because Paul is talking about the flesh of man. That old man that lived unregenerate apart from the spirit of God. That old man, there is nothing good in that old man that dwells there. And a lot of people, for some reason, we understand that when we come into Christ, that that flesh is still there. We know this. And we read verses like Galatians 5, 16 through 18, where it talks about the flesh and the spirit, how they're opposed to each other. In a Christian, <coughs> excuse me, in a Christian, you have the spirit, but you also still have the voice of the flesh who's trying to gain power back. And this is what Galatians 5.16 says, that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice, flesh has desires. Its desire is for you. It wants to rule the throne again. It wants to be brought back in. You still have the flesh. You now have the difference between an unredeemed man and a redeemed man in Jesus Christ is not that we don't have the flesh anymore. It's that we now have the Spirit that can suppress the flesh. 
We now have the authority through Christ to tell the flesh no. We now have the authority through the Spirit of God that He has given to us to be able to command that flesh and say, get off the throne, get out of this house, you have no business here. And to be ruled by the Spirit. You see, that's the difference between the two. But I have a choice in that. I can either sow to the flesh or I can sow to the Spirit. Only a believer has the choice to sow to the Spirit and the flesh. A person who does not have the Spirit of God, for one, doesn't belong to Christ Jesus, as Romans 8 9 says. And all they can do is sow to the flesh. And they can try to imitate Christ, they can try to imitate God all they want to, but they will be miserable replicas because there's nothing good that dwells in the flesh. And that's going to make sense here in a little bit because I want you to understand, Paul is talking about the two natures within a Christian. The nature of the old man and the nature of the new man. And what he's about to talk about has confused a lot of people unto incorrect living and doctrine for far too long. So he goes on, he says this, For I know, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, here's the problem with that. If I'm going to say that that is all Paul is, then now all of a sudden in chapter 6, verse 7 and 14, Paul has now become a hypocrite for teaching something before that's not actually true. Here's what he says in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Well, what did he just say? He said, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. What, what is he talking about? Because he just said, one who has died, meaning has now belonged to Christ, has been set free from sin. But here he's saying that of the flesh, I'm sold under sin. What is that? I'm captive to sin. I have to obey it. In the flesh. If you put flesh on the throne of your life, as a Christian can do, as Galatians 6, 7-10 through 10 says, God is not mocked, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows that, he will also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. You can live by the flesh. You can choose to say, I'm going to be fleshly today. As a Christian. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a fool. And I say that in the kindest words possible. But they do not understand the text, nor do they understand Christianity. Christianity did not remove the flesh from your life. All it did was inject the spirit into it. So that now you can choose to walk by something different. And have the power to do so. So when he's talking about this, look at what he says in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, meaning of Torah, but under grace. So what in the world? So many people look at this and they look at verse 14 of chapter 7 and they say, see, Paul says he's of the flesh. That's just who he is. That's what he is. That's what we are. No, that is not who he is. That is who he could be if he chose to serve the flesh and give into it. Remember what he talks about in James chapter 4 when he says, you know, you fight and quarrel because your passions are at war within you. What is that? That's the flesh and the spirit. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. He says, your flesh and the spirit within you are at war. That is why you are considered a double-minded man, meaning two-spirited. You have a spirit of the world, dipsukos, a spirit of the world and a spirit of heaven. And you're, you're wanting to feed both of them. He says, and you're unstable in all of your ways. 
Paul is simply stating here that in my flesh, if I choose to put flesh on the throne and I uh, try to silence the Spirit, this is what's going to happen in me. But if I choose to put the Spirit on the throne, which he then goes on in chapter 8 to talk about, as he's also talked about previously in Romans, as he's also talked about in his other epistles, if I put the Spirit on the throne, then the flesh doesn't have a voice and its desires cannot be gratified. Let me read what he says in Galatians chapter 5. Because you're going to find the remedy um, to the desires of the flesh. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What do we have to do? We have to walk by the Spirit. As he also upholds in Romans 6, 15 through 7, 8. That entire section right there, Romans chapter 6, verse 15, and go all the way through chapter 7, verse 8, he talks about this very thing of walking by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, but they're still active in you, even though you're a Christian. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now that is vital to understanding this, because if the Spirit in you rules the throne, the flesh will not have its way. But if you allow flesh to get on the throne, then the Spirit will not have its way. And you might want to do the things of the Spirit, but you will be powerless to do it because flesh is ruling. Listen to what he goes on to say in Romans chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. Remember, this is of the flesh. This is when flesh has the throne. Paul's not talking about him just as a Christian. Just This is just our lot in life. This is just what it's going to be. Paul is talking about when I choose to have the old nature have its way. And I choose for that flesh to be in control. I might want to do what is good, but I do not have the power within me to do it. Which is a contradiction to the rest of the New Testament. Because all of the epistles, whether it's Peter, whether it's James, or whether it's even Paul, going all throughout the epistles, one of the common threads sewn throughout the entire thing is that I now have the power to live the Christ-like life. It's called grace. So if Paul is saying here, I do not understand my own actions, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If he's saying, I don't have the power over the flesh... I don't have the power to be able to live the way that I want to. It's just my lot in life. I guess I'm just going to serve the flesh. This is just who I am. As I've heard pastors even say. Then we've just undermined the rest of the New Testament. In which he says things like 2 Corinthians 10.5. By the way, this is Paul stating this. That I have the authority to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound congruent with what he's talking about here. What about Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What about Peter in 2 Peter 1.3 when it says <clears throat> that his divine power has granted to me all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he goes on so that I might become a partaker of the divine nature. I might feast upon the spirit of God. I might feast upon the, the bread of heaven. And it says his divine power has been given to me so that I might live a godlike life. That's what godliness means, godlike. So now I'm undermining the claim of everything else in the New Testament if I'm simply to take this for what is stated and just saying, see, even Paul struggled. 
I mean, even Paul, you know, it says he does the things he, he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things he does want to do. That's just our lot in life. That's who we're going to be. No, that is who you will be if you stay in the flesh, which is what Paul's point is. Why he says that I'm of the flesh sold under sin. If you remain in the flesh, then that's exactly who you are and what you will be because the flesh is not stronger than sin. Only Christ is. And he goes on, he says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Did you catch it? Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And yet I could tell you that Paul says numerous times that the only good thing in him is Christ. Christ in him, the hope of glory. Paul says, in my flesh, I don't have the authority to live the Christ-like life. In my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells there. So I have to put aside the deeds of the flesh, as uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians, I drew a blank, I think it's Ephesians chapter 4, I believe that talks about it, where it says, put to death therefore the deeds of the flesh, and put on then as God's chosen ones, basically meaning put on the Spirit. In Colossians 3, it says the exact same. Put to death, therefore, the things that are earthly in you. And put on, then, as God's chosen ones, the Holy Spirit. We have the choice. And if I choose to sow to the flesh and let flesh rule my life, then I will be a servant to sin. I can't help it. I might want to live for Christ, but if I am of the flesh, I know nothing good dwells in that and I will be a miserable replica. But if I choose to allow the impartation of the Holy Spirit to fill me, to have the throne, and I sow to that spirit, then I will rule over that flesh and I will not have to give into that flesh and I don't have to serve the law of sin because only the flesh serves the law of sin. We got to get this chapter right. And we've got to have, stop having pastors from the pulpit teach that this is just our lot in life. It's time for the ignorance and it's time for the childlike belief to be put aside and grow into maturity. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I, I don't even know what more to say. If you believe that Paul literally is teaching that he doesn't have in Christ the, the ability to carry out a Christ-like life, then I don't know how to help you. Because to me, that means that you haven't put your nose in the Word to read. Because I could give you verse after verse after verse after verse that says that we have everything that we need to live out a Christ-like life. That the Spirit of God has come inside of a Christian to be able to empower you to live above sin, to live above flesh, and to actually guard and protect you from even the schemes of the devil so that none of those three would gain a foothold in your life. You and I have that authority. Paul's not saying I don't have the ability. He's simply stating in his flesh he doesn't have the ability. And he says this, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What did he talk about in chapter 6, verse 6? When he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He's contradicting what he wrote in the previous chapter. If I'm to believe that as my lot as a Christian, even though I have the Spirit of God, that it's just, I'm going to be captive to the law of sin. That's just who I am. Again, look at the context. Paul is stating that in his flesh, this is who he'll be. In your flesh, this is who you'll be. In my flesh, this is who I'll be. But praise God, He has given me something more than just the flesh to live by. He has given me His Spirit. A down payment for the inheritance that He says, that is mine until I, until I acquire possession of it in the end. As He says in Ephesians 1, 13-14. He has given me the authority of heaven. He has enriched me in every way. As He talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that every spiritual blessing has been given to me. In Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says. Um, let me turn to it real quick. Because there's actually two verses there. And I don't want to get it wrong. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this. And God is able to make all grace. Which is essentially the divine influence of heaven. It's the authority. It's the power. It's the riches of heaven. He says that he is able to make all grace abound to you. So that have all sufficiency in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. That doesn't sound like Romans chapter 7. And yet, it's written that God is able to make all grace, all the divine influence of heaven at your disposal so that you can abound in every good work in every single way at all times. Listen to what it goes on to say. You'll be enriched, in verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way that, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In every way. You have been given the enrichment of heaven so that you can abound in every good work. Well, where's that teaching in conjunction with Romans chapter 7? It fits perfectly if you realize that through Christ and the Spirit, we have access to the grace in which we stand and the armory of heaven, every spiritual blessing, every spiritual thing that God has given to us in Christ Jesus, that when the Spirit is on the throne, you have the authority of heaven at your disposal to live a God-like life. But if you choose to set that aside and live by the flesh, you don't. It's a very simple teaching. But for some reason, because people, I guess, have just studied Romans chapter 7 and they've just poured over that one chapter and they don't pour over the other chapters and verses in conjunction with it, we miss it today in the church. He says, wretched man that I am, meaning in his flesh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this flesh? Who is it that will empower me to live above this flesh? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God has given me the remedy to live above this flesh. To live in authority of heaven. So that the Spirit of God can have dominion in me and I'm no longer held captive by sin. Praise be to God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, that he has empowered me through the Holy Spirit to not have to live in this wretched man of the flesh, that I can put him to death every single day. In which Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I die daily. Christian, you and I have got to get this text right. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's summarizing everything that he just said. He said, if I am going to serve with my flesh, then I will serve the law of sin. He will be my master. But as Paul has clearly stated in previous sections in Romans, I am no longer under sin. I am no longer under the law of God, meaning the law of Torah. Now I'm under the law of Christ. Which is summarized basically in two commands. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And to love the Adelphos or the brethren or the body of Christ as Christ loved the church. Those are the two greatest commands that all of the new covenant hinges on. Those are our great commission. It is not the great commission. I know that was labeled that and you look at the subtitle, but that was added by man. It is not the great commission to go into all the nations and and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not the great commission. That's a commission. And that is something that we should not compromise and we need to be doing. But the greatest commission that he has given to us is echoed over and over and over and over and over and over again in almost every single book, if not every book of the New Testament. And that is that we love His church. As Christ loved us. And Christian, you and I have been given the authority to do it in the manner that pleases Christ. You and I have been given the authority over sin. You and I have been given the authority in Christ by the Spirit of God in order to overcome sin. But you have a choice. Will you live according to the flesh and reap corruption? Or will you live according to the Spirit and reap life? The choice is yours. Y'all be blessed.